Welcome to So Sorry for Your Loss. This is not your average grief group. I'm Gianna DiMedio. Thanks for joining me as we normalize the conversation around grief with the stories of those who've gone through it, a whole lot of humor, and a pinch of celebrity and entertainment news. Because fun fact, they grieve too. There's more to grief than that godforsaken dove flying over a willow tree on a sympathy card. I know you've seen it and know what I mean. Let's change the way society looks at it. Visit ssfylpodcast.com for more. Welcome back. It's Christmas week. How are we feeling? It's going to be exciting to have the holiday, but also exciting to be over with it. I'm sure many of you are feeling that way. I know I feel that way sometimes, but this holiday definitely has a different meaning now that I have a little babe with me. We spent the weekend up in New York City doing some holiday things. We did the high tea at the plaza, sat next to an incredibly, incredibly famous person, Leonardo DiCaprio. I know, I know, you're freaking out. So are we. <laughs> but it was a really cool experience overall and got to see some friends while we were up there. Uh, if you listened to the last episode, you know, we're like in the middle of this big move. So we're just living out of a hotel right now, which in some sense, it's actually maybe a little bit better because I don't have a tree. I don't have any holiday stuff. I actually just feel like it's any other day on most days, but I, uh, know that it's definitely coming and I'm starting to feel it in my bones. Speaking of that, milestones, that's another thing that you really feel in your bones when they're on their way. I talked about it with today's guest, Sean Hitchens. We go over about how milestones can really creep up on you. And he had a beautiful way of explaining what it means to him, which is that it's a marker in time to see how far you've come. So where I tend to look at it as like, oh gosh, sometimes it's this thing on the calendar that is there to just torture you. He's like, no, this is a way to mark the progress that you've made with your grief. And let me just tell you, that is just the tip of the iceberg with the way that he looks at grief. There are so many other moments throughout his book called The Light Streamed Beneath It and in our conversation today where his view on grief is just really different and more positive than I would expect. That is what is so cool about doing this podcast. I'm loving this experience. I'm hoping that you guys are getting from it what what I am too and learning from all of these people and just different ways to look at the traumatic aspects of your life. So Sean Hitchens is with us today. He used to be finding a lifetime full of punchlines. He was a comedian, but then the comedy stopped. He lost his ex-husband who he had a wonderful relationship with to a tragic accident in the house fire. He spent the time with him at his bedside as he took his last breaths. And then a mere six months later, his boyfriend at the time died by suicide. Two tragic losses surrounding love. Yet he found the pathway to healing and he discovers what happens when he lets his heart remain open. His book, again, The Light Streamed Beneath It, I highly recommend it. It had me looking at my grief experience in a totally different way. You'll hear from him today and just how he takes on this tenacious spirit and he's got humor and kindness and grit and how it helped him through these unforgiving challenges. Sean is also a member of the LGBTQ plus community and his book is deemed a modern gay memoir exploring love, death, pain, and a community that will resonate long after the last page. He talks about grief for that community in ways that, you know, me as a cis hetero female would have never 
never thought. So it really opened up my eyes to different aspects there too. I hope this conversation opens you up to positive ways of grief, to looking at it from the perspective of different communities. And it's just another really great episode of So Sorry for Your Loss for You. So hey, next time I will talk to you, Christmas will be done. We'll be on our way to New Year's Eve. Listen, I hope it is a fabulous holiday for you. You know that I'm always here. DM me at so sorry with Gianna. Message me, email me, whatever you need to do. But have a wonderful holiday. Here we go. Sean Hitchens. Hi. Oh, there, there you go. are. There we go. I had to touch a button. <laughs> it's it's a very difficult task. And despite two years of doing it, we all still don't know how to do it. So it's fine. I don't I don't know how to do it. <laughs> I also love how are you good. We're both doing bedroom recordings. I like it. I like it. Yeah. I read the book and I'm so excited. I have so many questions and you know, see how much I can pack in in an hour. Matt was your first husband who passed away suddenly. And then you unfortunately had the experience of another loss of a loved one in your life with David. Yeah. A lot of people say I'm I'm an unlucky person and I think the exact opposite. I think I'm a very lucky, very blessed person. And I'm maybe uh, a person that shitty things have happened to and that's okay. But it, you know, Matt's family and David's family, especially with the book coming out have been even more supportive. Mm. and more engaged, which is beautiful because that was one of my big fears. Absolutely. <laughs> Putting it yeah. all out there. Because there's always yeah. that question after a death, like what does this mean then for our relationship? I had that in my family. I did right. not have a good relationship with my dad's girlfriend. We really got through a lot of our differences because we said, listen, this person in between us, like we're the only ones that have those memories and we right. want to keep them. So let's figure out how we can have a relationship with each other. And it seems like that might've been the similar case for you with each of their families. Yeah. And I think, okay, so I have two thoughts. And the first thought is like that idea of like what happens after someone dies and it's that collapse, right? All of a sudden it's your, your relationships are suspended mm-hmm. and it's not so much that, you know, here's this, here's this, it's the distance between all of these things. It's like a, like a universe, a constellate, a constellation and that spongy quality that you lose when someone dies. Mm-hmm. And the wonderful thing that can happen post-death is that everybody holds space for everybody's distance between the individual. And that doesn't really happen a lot. Right. You know, it, it's sort of a, a radical idea to just hold space and not just say me or I want after someone dies. Yeah. And, and this sort of this grasping quality. And so the second part of that is from a queer perspective, like historically, when, when a gay man dies, the family just absorbs the identity. They, they take that individual back to the small town and they, mm. it's a very private ceremony and partners weren't even allowed in hospitals with their loved ones. And I had always had that idea in my head of like, oh, gay men don't get to be with their lovers when they die. Because historically that's what happened with AIDS and, and homophobia and all, all the wonderful things we've been subjected to. And in both these cases, with both Matt and David, the families were just like, come in, yeah, be here. I also thought it was really beautiful. You talked about the nurse. I forget if it was, you had a, a couple quirky and funny names for them. Mm-hmm. I think it was Blue Eyeliner. <laughs> yeah, I remember Blue her Eyeliner. <laughs> I, I read it a little bit ago. But when she pulled you into a room and yeah. said, first of all, this is shit, which yeah. was phenomenal that somebody right. in the medical space said that to you because it's 100% true. Yeah. And 
to have somebody kind of like almost like break that fourth wall right of like yeah. break that wall of professionalism and just say like this is really hard and i'm here for you on that personal level as a human mm -hmm. not just even as a doctor a physician or somebody you know a clinician in this yeah. in this situation but when she said we know who you are you're the first mm -hmm. wife you're yeah. important you have a place here and we're going to make sure you get it yeah that was so radical yeah and so wonderful i mean heteronormative comparisons are always that thing that you're you're like wait a minute uh -huh. but there was such clarity with what with how she said it mm -hmm. and and i instantly clicked in with her mm -hmm. and i she was able to do in like that our conversation was like one hour in her office she offered me bourbon i was like no i actually want to be very that <laughs> also was amazing <laughs> like they yeah. teach us in medical school somewhere this is great <laughs> because that be yeah yeah it was i mean here's a thing that i learned because matt died as a result of injuries in a house fire burn unit of a hospital is a very difficult place to be mm -hmm. and i went into that office and i at one point said what did you guys do to here like i in my head i was like oh this place is a punishment right they must have done something wrong or like they're trying to get into another unit and she said oh no i'm gonna stop you right there everybody on this floor made a choice to be here so that level of attunement and the care that they were able to provide is because mm -hmm. they made a choice to be in the most difficult ward in a hospital that's the level like after my takeaway from that was like, that is the level in which I want to operate with people, with the people yeah. in my life. Yeah. And we've really seen that over the last almost two years now, these people mm -hmm. that have made a choice to really be in a position to give to, yeah. to people in hospitals, to people, you know, whatever the, the work that they're doing as frontline workers has been mm -hmm. just tremendous. And I, I know like those moments are the ones that stick with you. It was difficult for me reading that passage mm -hmm. of your book specifically the the time when you were with matt as he took his last breaths because mm -hmm. i shared that same experience with my dad and mm -hmm. i mean it was like a scene of a movie for me like being in the room with you and matt and being in the room with me and my dad and just kind yeah. of going back and forth and i was really in both places at one time and i will say how you were able to explain things in such a like an otherworldly process and and mm -hmm. the the light bursting or or you know that yeah. he i want to say the word beautiful but i'm reaching for something even more profound than that you made it sound so much more than i was able to to appreciate it in that moment mm -hmm. you know like i i was i was just to me i was sinking and we were all right. sinking and we were going into this horrible depths of the earth and he was just mm -hmm. being ripped from my grasp Right. And to listen to the way that you were able to interpret it mm -hmm. almost made me revisit my whole experience in a different way. And I really put this, the, the things that have happened in the hospital into a tomb. And like, I don't revisit that very often. Right. My experience with my dad's death and the relationship that I have with him now, I think I have, I think I'm in a really good place with my grief, right. but reading your book did make me realize hmm, that's probably one area that I could open up a little bit. And I really loved how you put it. And it's like, I encourage everybody that has been there at the bedside for a loved one's death to go and read 
first of all, your entire book, but but this chapter specifically. I mean, mm-hmm. talk a little bit about your experience in that moment and how you're able to look back at it now. I'll start the reverse and say that experience for me, I don't describe it as a gift, but I describe it like the pomegranate seed, like the Persephone pomegranate seed. It's knowledge that you swallow and you go, oh my gosh, here's the extreme of it. It took me a lot to learn what I could have learned in a six part series with Joseph Campbell on PBS, right? Like this is horror is at the forefront of awe and wonder. And that is what I experienced in that room with Matt. Like I still am unsettled by how beautiful it was. Mm. In the worst moment of my life, I felt comfort and I felt beauty and that it had a, a numinous quality to it. I think that is the gift that we give our loved ones when we show up for them. Yeah. And it's like for years, I call that experience the one degree shift because for years, because I, I had a a traumatic childhood. And for years, it's like you're sitting, you're standing at the edge of a dock and every, you see someone beside you, they're on an equal length dock and you're all staring at this beautiful horizon. And all of a sudden someone comes and puts a garbage bag in front of you and says, okay, this is physical abuse. Oh, this is emotional abuse. This is a terrible incident that happened to you when you were 17. Oh, this, 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 like eventually you get a point where there's just garbage bags in front of you and you can't see the sunset. Mm. Being in the room with Matt was just an invitation to move one degree to the right. Oh, wow. And go, oh, none of that matters. Mm-hmm. And so I'm able to see the sun. Like, I know it sounds very sort of like poetic and woo woo, but I'm actually able to see the same horizon that everybody else gets to mm-hmm. see now. I will say your perspective on it almost takes away the fear I have for experiencing someone else's death. You see the positives in it very much. I can, I can see the positives after the fact, Mm -hmm. but in that, like that moment, it's like, I guess I know. And I talked about this with somebody um, that was just recently on my, on my podcast about the ability to embrace death really allows you to embrace life. Like how can you understand the full meaning of life? If you are not able to take away the awkwardness, the uncomfort, the taboo, all of those things Mm -hmm. about death. And I think that's what you're saying. It's like in that moment of his death, you, you were able to refocus about what really mattered in life. Right. There's something that I've always been someone who's been thrown into extreme situations. So I, I have a lower fear level. And I think that's sort of why I spent my 20s and most of my 30s as a comedian, just because, you know, you just go out there with nothing and you hope you come away with some sort of laughter or some sort of approval. And I mean, I've been through therapy and I know I can't be a comedian anymore. But <laughs> well, <that's, laughs> I, I actually <laughs> did want to ask you about that. You yeah. talked about being afraid to go to therapy yeah, because you I thought was... <laughs> you, it was like you were, they were going to take away your comedy card that you, yeah. things wouldn't be funny anymore. You wouldn't see the humor in situations. You would almost look at everything so matter of factly after <laughs> therapy. And it became this spiritual awakening So tell us a little bit about your experience. Uh, so yeah, I was terrified about going to therapy. I, I And I do say that it has ruined my career because it has in a way, but it wasn't in the way that I expected it. And uh, you've spent a couple weeks in California, so I'm going to go full woo-woo here. Okay, and let's say- oh, uh, Yeah, I was in Laguna Beach, like heart of woo-woo. Every okay. <laughs> other place was either a tattoo shop or right. a coffee shop or a chakra spa where they like yeah. want to read your palm and, and do all of it. <laughs> 
I bought yeah. into it. I totally did it. I loved all yeah. of it. It was great, but I've never yeah. seen one town embrace it all as if it was like a mm. CVS. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I gotta go. Uh, I gotta go there. So the reason I couldn't feel my body, like I was completely disembodied. So the only way that I could feel my body was unfortunately when I drank mm. or when I was on stage and there's nothing like an applause of 500 people to make you feel your body yeah. or the laughter of an audience to make you feel your body. So performing was my biggest addiction. And the great thing through therapy and getting into the depths of sorrow where those traumatic childhood experiences that have to do with my body somehow were activated, but because they weren't as, it took a lot of sorrow and despair for them to be just come neutral. Mm -hmm. For me to go, oh, that's why. Yeah. So that's changed my relationship to performing and to comedy. Okay. Because I can now feel my body. Right. I can have sex without being drunk. It, it's an entirely new operating system. Mm -hmm. And thankfully the pandemic has given me a lot of space where I don't have the pressure to be on stage or to mm -hmm. perform. And now I'm just relearning how to approach my career where I actually feel my entire body. Very interesting. You also had a quote that I really loved about, and I think this was something I, I put this in the therapy section, because I think it was something that you kind of were able to come to this conclusion throughout your therapy, but that God breaks your heart over and over until it remains open. And yeah, I think that's something that therapy really is able to help you do mm -hmm. almost to you know, whether it's from childhood traumas or, or death or anything else that you go through in your life, but to mm -hmm. kind of have this openness, this forgiveness for yourself and for everything mm -hmm. that you go through is, is that you're, you know, a few years out from each of their deaths now, is that something, are you still able to remain open? Oh, I am more open than I've ever been. And it took something as, you know, I think after someone dies and people are like, how do you become vulnerable again? There's a, a somatic practitioner named Richard Strozzi, who talks about one of the ways that we can cultivate vulnerability is by just facing the sun, which is also great for PTSD, which I did suffer from. And I inhabited my grief. So I had complicated grief. And so one of the best ways to sort of promote vulnerability and stave off those two wonderful things that I carried around for a bit is bright light. I, I became someone who worshiped the sun and I'm a, I'm a redhead. I should not be doing this But <laughs> every day at the same time I would go out and I would like face the sun wherever it was in the sky. And I would just close my eyes and by allowing yourself to take one or two, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, and just close your eyes and say, nothing's going to happen to my body in that time, you start building boundaries again. Hmm. Cause you can actually see where you're, you can feel, you know, the sun on your face, you can feel it through your eyelids and you know, where you end and the outside world begins. Hmm. And so that is how I started practicing vulnerability again. And what is that practice called to do that? It's uh, nourishing your receptive state. As so, I'm sitting here, literally the sun yeah. is reflecting off of one of the city buildings. Yeah. If you can see it, like 
beaming onto my face. I feel like you and the sun planned this at perfect yeah. timing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's divine. Yeah. <laughs> You're Seriously. welcome. Yeah. Right. Thank you. You know, I also, I also write about at the end of the book being in San Francisco and just falling back in love in love with life again. I'm still working on that with a human. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, you know, I couldn't, I was told, well, we, I came with an, an agreement with Kathy, my therapist, that I wouldn't date for a while just because I was just ripped apart. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. You've heard me talk about how therapy has been an absolute life changer for me. Like I legit don't know where I'd be without it. So if you're on the hunt for a therapy partner, you need to check out BetterHelp. It offers virtual services, assesses your personalized needs, and matches you with a licensed professional therapist that you can start talking to within 48 hours. And it's even more affordable than traditional counseling. Speaking of affordability, they're allowing me to gift you with 10% off your first month because I love you and I want to see you get the help that you need. You absolutely owe it to yourself to seek the support of a licensed therapist. You probably already do your banking online, read your news online, and do so many other things online. So go ahead and take care of that aching heart. Again, code SSFYL can get you 10% off your first month. They really make it so simple. So go check it out. Betterhelp.com SSFYL. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash SSFYL. Thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. Yeah, I mean, and that is one of my questions. What are your thoughts on on dating? Where are you with it now? In my situation, I don't get another dad. You know, it's not like I can go out and have another dad. I am in some senses afraid to to love other things. I did have a Mm -hmm. hard time in the prospect of going on to the journey of pregnancy because I'm opening myself up to this other thing that I could lose again. And I was just like, I cannot do this again. So mm-hmm. I can't imagine how that must feel for you to, to have these two loves of your life just taken from you in such a short mm-hmm. amount of time. It, do you feel that that could happen again? Do you feel that ongoing PTSD or do you feel the work that you've done has kind of released you from that fear? I'm open to losing again. I think that is for me, the lesson I needed to learn. Wow is that you will lose again. You will lose again and again and again and again. And the important thing is that you feel it. When I was with Matt, I thought I would die if I lost him. And then Matt and I split up and I struggled in our breakup. And then I got to this point of like, okay, I'm, you know, moving forward and I meet David and I fall in love with David again. And I'm into it. And then I lose Matt and... I didn't die. Mm-hmm. I, I struggle with the idea that I didn't die. Hmm. And then David You struggle died. with the fact that you were okay? Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can understand that. And that was survivors. I had survivor's guilt. Mm. And then I had survivor's guilt with David, doubled because his uh, death was, was by suicide. I mean, that is just traumatic at its core that, and I'll tell for for the listeners, if you haven't read it again, which you totally should, that, and I'll let you tell your own story of of, of how it happened. I mean, that it was right after you left. Yeah. So David had fallen into a place where I was clocking him and going, no, something's not right. And so David and I were off and on, off and on. And then I flew up 
because I was in Los Angeles eating tacos and like taking Lyft scooters and just like sort of feeling a bit of freedom after Matt died and I clocked David. And so I went up to visit him in San Francisco and he was not in a great place. I knew he wasn't in a great place. We had a very difficult weekend together. At the end of the weekend, we made an agreement that this is where partnership began and we would get through whatever this is. And I would support him. I even offered to marry him and he had lost his health care. Yeah. I left because I had to go back to LA and David fell into crisis very quickly. Within hours, went to a hospital, was rejected, went home and completed suicide. And so then I was stuck feeling, and I, I lived with that, 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 this idea that I killed David for about two years. So that, that, that is the, the level of survivor's guilt that I, I, I was experiencing both with Matt and David. Why I, I say that I, I, I lived and that I, I didn't die is because I learned that when Matt died, I thought I'm never going to feel this again. I'm, I'm never going to feel that quality again. Mm-hmm. The quality of like putting everything into one human being, I now spread out among other people. Oh, okay. So like my attachment style isn't like my one and only. Yeah. You're my one and only. I can see qualities of Matt in the people that I meet and bring into my life. And everybody holds a piece of that. What are some things that you were able to do to reach forgiveness for yourself? Forgiveness, specifically with David, around his two-year milestone, which those milestones are, are they, Awful. they, it's yeah, it's a burning process. It's in your body, and it'll, yeah. it, you can just feel it. You can feel it like a it cold really is. I, I'm happy to hear you say that yeah. because I always feel like I'm crazy when I say it. It's as if your body indi- like works independently of yourself and knows the date, whether you tell it or not. Right. 100%. I hate it. (laughs) I do whatever I can to try to like get around it. I'm like, I am going to trick it this year. You just wait and see. (laughs) Yeah. Never works. No, it never works. Uh, I think the thing like I needed to say with those milestones to myself is that they are for the living. They're for the, the survivors to acknowledge where they were and where they are now. Ah, yes. And in terms of like that second year mark with David, I could feel that sort of like you, you killed David, you killed David energy coming through me. And I was like, oh my gosh, here we go. I'm going to have to have an emergency therapy session. I said, no, sit down and write 10 reasons why David completed suicide. Wow. And I wrote 15 and it wasn't anything to do with blaming people or naming people who did specific things. We only focus on the action that someone takes. And so you have to forgive the action mm-hmm. and separate it from the person. And then you have to look at the, the environment and the landscape that that person was traversing. I don't say David completed suicide. I say David was denied health care. Yeah. And so you have to look at it like a bunch of cogs turning together. So you have 15 cogs turning together and all it takes is one person to turn the crank and the marble gets released. Right. Right. But you have to have all of those parts in place that right. allow someone to fall through the fabric of society. Mm. I guess every January and February, you know, media campaigns come out and say, you know, like, let's talk about suicide, you know, suicide prevention, which is really important. Like those numbers, those, those hotline numbers, the suicide guards on bridges, they're very important. But when are we going to start talking about living wages? Yeah. When are we going to talk about affordable mental health care? When are we going to- That is by far the biggest thing. Yeah. Yeah. 
that's the part where I go, that's where forgiveness comes in for me, because I understand that once I forgave myself, I, you know, like in the same way that I look at Matt's death of like, I was able to sit with someone in their most intimate moment. Perhaps that last weekend with David was just to be sort of a, a Samuel Beckett, you know, waiting for Godot, let's sit in despair to, together. And so at least you weren't alone in your despair. Mm-hmm. And the reason I was able to be with David in that situation was because I was so far blown out by Matt's death that it just felt like normal to me. For it to have happened so soon after too is, is just, I can't believe I'm sitting here looking at a human, you know, it's right. like, <laughs> it's, I am, I am so in awe of the, the work that you've done to mm-hmm. be able to not only function, but to function well, and to be able to write this book to be able to give these lessons to others Mm -hmm. because it is really transformative. Tell me a little bit about some of the feedback that you've received and how does that help you in your journey to know that you're helping others too? I think it's twofold. I've received a lot of what I, on Instagram, I I call them the trauma bombs where you Mm -hmm. open up your DMs and you see, uh, you know, just a very long scroll and you're like, oh, wow. Uh And I immediately get the pressure to like, immediately engage because it says I've seen it. So the last couple of months have been fielding a lot of those long paragraphs. You know, I've heard from Matt's community and from David's community. And what has been really great is that it's provided a lot of healing for people. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody wants to write about their loved one and then they they'll write a beautiful obituary and they'll submit it to a newspaper And then they'll get the, this will cost $1,500 to print. And immediately we start paring down the story. Right. (laughs) Right. So it was something I could do because that's just my art. That's what I do. Nobody writes elegy anymore. So it's been wonderful to have a response to that because, you know, a lot of people will write on social media, you know, Mm -hmm. social media has become the engagement for grief. Yeah. And it's the moment when you say, Hey, interact with me with grief. Like here it is. And then maybe, you know, you'll get four or five posts out of it. And then Facebook reminds you of the milestones. You go, okay, now, now I'll say something like this. I feel like the book is sort of a a living, has a living quality to it. The wonderful thing is that it's not sort of an engagement, like, Hey, engage with my grief, the way that social media has sort of uh, taught us to do. It's sort of like a sit with me in it. There's almost like this acceptable time period too of like, okay, it happened like within the last year. And then after that, like, why are you still talking about this? Right. And with writing a book, people were like, you know, it's way too soon to write a book about it. And I go, bullshit, bullshit. Because if people wanted the story 10 years from now, it wouldn't be the same story because I wanted to capture what was in my body. I didn't want to forget it. Like the same way that we forget, I don't know, I'm not going to say pregnancy, but like pain, the forget, we forget pain, we come yeah. numb to it. I wanted to capture the pain. I couldn't write this book 10 years from now. Oh, totally. Very, you know, and then, and then there would be so much crafting in it and so much, we would add fiction and, 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 and layers of fat to just sort of like, you know, shape. Right. It. No, I'm happy that you wrote it when you did, because part of what made it such a beautiful read was the amount of detail that you were able to put into it mm-hmm. down to like specific things that people were wearing or what they said, or the music that was playing at certain moments. And that mm-hmm. really shaped the, the audience's journey, you know, going yeah. through it with you. Like I said, I really felt like I was sitting in that room with you mm-hmm. on, on several occasions, mm-hmm. very much in, in that, that last 
moments with Matt, but also in that mm -hmm. last weekend with David, yeah. specifically yeah. The, that one phone call you said he took and he went outside and he came back in and you were like, I feel like you're disappointed that it's me that's here. Yeah. And I, as a reader was like, yeah, I, I feel that too. And it was because right. you had right. built it up so well throughout. And, and it's, it's things like that, that I think would have been lost if you did wait too long. So right. you really it, delivered something beautiful to your readers. We don't fall in love with saints. And when the weird thing that happens after someone dies, like they were so wonderful. Oh yeah. Oh God. They, they had a halo, you know, they smelled like, like we, we, we make them saints. They smell like roses from me wrote about Matt and David, the way that I wish to be captured. Tell me about the times I was a shitty human being, because those moments of where you, you in a relationship where you make a promise to wrap around and heal, that's the thing, you know, you, you fight, you always come back to heal. And it's mm -hmm. in the healing where, yeah, David and I had this like explosive fight, but then we we're on the floor together, comforting each other. That's the strength of the relationship. Yeah. And also if I didn't point to all the times when I sort of pushed back on David, because David pushed me to the edges of my love. Matt never did. Matt and I didn't. This was the, the polar opposite of mm -hmm. um, the relationship. Matt and I never fought. We fought once over a hydro bill. David and I probably weekly and both had different qualities. And I, if someone wrote in my obituary, Sean Hitchens could be an asshole at times. I would be very happy. Right. Fair. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Fair. Fair. There were, there were 35 years when I was reacting from trauma. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So but that's real life. I mean, nobody's perfect. I always look at the times you hear on the news when somebody passes and it's like the person close to them on the, on, on camera, that's like, they just lit up a room and they just <laughs> wanted to change the world. It's, it's yeah. always the same, same thing when you're given a quick bit of who this person is, but yeah. to really dive into the person, of course, you're going to uncover things underneath yeah. every stone and I was guilty of that with my dad. I, I want to go back to something you had said. You said you inhabited your grief. What do you mean by that? I had complicated grief, which means that in the, so there's the acute stage and the integrated stage. Uh -huh. So the acute stage is that, that two or three month window after someone dies, when depending on whether it's a kinship uh, grief or a spousal kinship death or a spousal death or an ambiguous death or an ambiguous loss determines, you know, the length of your acute stage. And also attachment styles predict how you uh, experience loss and separation. Hmm. So before you even know it at the beginning of your relationship, the plans and the blueprint are set for how you will experience loss and separation. No shit. So there's yeah. like some type of equation for this. There is, and it's about your attachment style. And, and there's, yeah, yeah, I've done it. I, the weird part of my grief to get myself out of my inhabiting my grief, I had to read. I had to read a lot. I think I've read almost 80 textbooks and things like that. Full studying, not research, but studying. Complicated grief happens when you can't get out of the acute stage, when you yeah. don't integrate uh, your, your loss. I think that's very much where I was. So I very much went to this saintly figure mm -hmm. and grieving not the loss of the person, but more the loss of the future and the more of the opportunity, the loss of the opportunity to have made things right. Once I was able to grasp that, then I could move on to the loss of the person. 
Mm-hmm. So how can how can we figure out what this equation that you speak of of your attachment style and and like what is it that you need to look at to figure out how you're gonna? Well, I'm. It's it's hard because I'm only at the beginning of understanding this. I had what what was called somatization. I experienced grief as a physical response. My chest burned, my ribs burned, my lips were numb for at least a year. So one of the things that I had to understand was that emotional pain is physical pain. Mm-hmm. It's a physical sensation. When David yeah. would say my feelings have feelings, he wasn't saying that like I was, you know, like sort of like a social media, like, Oh, my feelings have feelings or, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's how I do it. My, my feelings have feelings <laughs> saying my feelings have sensations. Yeah. So I was actually processing grief through somatic sensations. I needed to have that. I needed to relieve that because mm-hmm. it is very uncomfortable. And so I just started this sort of heuristic sort of trial and error. I got to figure this out. I got to move this grief around. I've got to figure out how to how to communicate what's happening in my body. What mm-hmm. is this? What does this mean? What does this mean? What does that mean? And so I just went for it. I went kind of kind of on this weird journey of like yoga, cycling, swinging on swing sets. I took Spanish classes. I started studying like dance, Israeli dance. It's a very physical experience too. That's something that I think is this misnomer of grief and Mm -hmm. that, okay, it happens. It it lasts like three to six months. You're really sad. And then life goes on. And Mm -hmm. first of all, we know that that's not the case at all. And that it's something that (laughs) sticks with you forever, but also it's not, yeah, it's not just sadness. I mean, there is so much physical pain. It's aliveness. Yeah. It's aliveness. Mm -hmm. The fact that we, we were laughing. There were moments of laughter in the waiting room while Matt was down the hallway. That is the thing that I lean into. Mm -hmm. And what I encourage had, what I had to do to get out of complicated grief was to really own the fact that you feel incredibly, incredibly alive when your loved one dies. Mm-hmm. Like I, when, when I was in that room wailing after Matt died, I could feel like my earlobes throbbing. Part of survivor's grief for me was to really just go, why do I, like, I can't feel this alive. Like when the pandemic happened and everybody was on Instagram going, the sky is so blue. The grass is so green. It was like, no, the grass has always been that green. The sky has always been that blue. You just have are dulled. Mm -hmm. You don't see it. Mm -hmm. And so I was navigating the world where like food, like, you know, like sugar tasted amazing. And I just was seeing vibrant colors. Wow. I just sort of had to lean into that. I want to go back to the woo woo part a little bit (laughs) because I know you declared yourself an atheist, but said the experience made you no longer an atheist, but you did pray to something a little unusual. So tell us about that. I pray to asparagus Mm -hmm. (laughs) off the top. I'll say I would not be alive if I didn't lean into symbolism and metaphor and comfort, Mm -hmm. which as a queer person is something that is stripped from you immediately. And as a queer person to openly say, yeah, I pray to asparagus, you know, or that I feel God is a 
pretty bold statement in the Mm -hmm. age of Twitter. And it is that numinous quality that I felt in the room with Matt as he was dying that I think Christians would describe as grace and other religions would start uh, describing it as mystery. It's also called the epiphany. It's, you know, there's a hundred different ways of looking at the same thing, which is just like my chest glowed. I felt that because I felt that and I felt comfort in the worst moment of my life. Mm-hmm. For me to just throw that off to the side and say that is, you know, like, oh, whatever, move on. I can't. Right. But I also don't want to start reading scripture and I don't, don't want to, I don't want to like join a faith group. I don't want to, I don't want to transform it other than the fact that it was just a beautiful sensation in my body. And so what, like, I just have this really beautiful memory of my grandfather, Clarence, and we had, a, I grew up on a farm and every spring we would race to see who got the first cut of asparagus. I just cannot think of something more beautiful than the fact that asparagus grows, you know, for two to three weeks a year at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's the first one that comes up in the spring in, you know, Ontario. And I pair that with like Carolyn Mace's idea that there is always a spring. We are mm-hmm. always a promise to spring. And those two things were what got me through this really shitty two and a half year experience I had. Has your relationship with faith changed at all beyond that? Or is, is, are you still kind of, is it this, this almost this new faith, this Sean Hitchens faith of, yeah. of, you know, what you created. I mean, I do love that you stayed true to yourself, but also didn't throw away that experience. Like you said, I, I do think mm-hmm. it would have been such a waste to have gone through something so life altering like that. And then just kind of walked mm-hmm. out of the hospital and left it there. Yeah. So I love that you brought it with you, but then made it your own. Have you pursued mm-hmm. any further what that kind of means to you? And and maybe how you'll bring it into your life moving further, or are we just all asparagus all the time? It, it, it's maturing in me because I know that I, I stopped eating meat after for some reason. Like I, I have like, I will occasionally eat meat, but I just started going, mm, my cat, I feel like my cat is also like a, a spirit too. <laughs> you know, like also I have a lot more tolerance for other people when they are describing, you know, their religious beliefs. I'm more curious about what they believe and rather mm-hmm. than, oh, you believe in God? Oh, go for, you know, like that would be my former self. I don't want to hear about it. Fuck you. You hate gays. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you want to sit in a conversation about this? I w- I'm actually curious to know what that is. It also shapes how I want to be in the world. And I don't know why I'm relating this back to being a comedian. Comedians just constantly break things. You know, we break tension, we break ideas, we break things open and that we're just constantly doing, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to grow things. I want to cultivate. I want to point to solutions. I want to like, and so this is an entirely different approach that is directly connected to the fact that I've felt comfort. I truly felt after the death of my dad that a therapist had said this to me, that it had an Mm -hmm. existential shift on my life, the way that I viewed everything, I do think in a positive, you know, I look back at prior me and I'm like, why did you possibly worry about X, Y, and Z? Why did you think that this was important or whatever? And I've definitely changed my view on, on certain things. And I see that in you, like to the nth degree Mm -hmm. that 
it's had such a shift in the way that you approached your career, the way of, that you've approached your faith, the way that you've approached mm -hmm. everything and for the positive. And I think sometimes it's hard for me to connect with some people because I'll say, oh yeah, like what's something good that came from your grief? And they look at me like I'm <laughs> fucking nuts. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like they're like, what yeah. could, no, what? <laughs> Nothing good came from this. But then like, actually you're right now that I'm thinking about it or, you know, I wouldn't have met yeah. this person or I wouldn't have left this job or wouldn't have done these right. things. And I think it's a very important message to share that mm. there is a life beyond it. You have to go through mm. some shit and you have to go through some muck and some really dark times, yeah. but to get to this life that you, you couldn't have ever fathomed before pretty yeah. much. 100%. One of the things for me is that I now know the difference between audience and community. Mm -hmm. For years, I was always that guy who was just like constantly clocking audience. It's not in my audience. Why is that seat empty? Oh, uh-huh. I'm always, was always someone who was hyper-focused on why that one person didn't show up. Right. Right. And now I look at the exact opposite and go, if three people showed up in an audience now that I would just be like, oh, welcome. Let's create community. Right. You go from looking at the glass half empty to looking at the glass half full. I, I mean, I yeah. joke and I said that there was barely anything in my glass before. <laughs> like the smallest things would cause yeah. problems. And now I, and I, I hate that it's the human default though, right? That yeah. we're like always so negative and so, so upset about things. But talking about community, it's definitely not lost on me. The part when you were talking about when you got the call about David, that mm. it was just different and you just knew it wasn't mm -hmm. an accident. It wasn't, yeah. you know, something it, it was because of, of being a gay man in this society that there yeah. were, there are fates, say, right. If there are others that are listening that are, are looking for health help in that realm, what are some community or resources that you can recommend? Oh my gosh. I don't have specific resources. I will say that the central question that a queer person asks themselves is who shows up for me. I think that one of the ways that we continue to fall through the fabric of society is how we buffer our relationships. And it goes back to the heteronormative comparisons, right? My birth family and I are relatively estranged. I know that they don't show up for me. So I've built this circle around me where I go, oh, that's my fake mother, or that's my fake sister, or that's this, or that's, you know, this is my, like, they're like a cousin. I now remove all of those comparisons. This is Louisa. She's a central structure in my life. Mm, okay, this is Dasha. Yeah. She's a support beam in my life. Mm -hmm. This is my roof. These are my walls. This is my floor. This is my foundation. Because what happens when we fall into crisis, the space that we make between like, say my fake mother and I is the space that we fall through because we're not entitled to it. What I say to, I, I can't give specific, like call this line, call that line, because it's so, you know, like the thing is like, in our relationships, start thinking about like a house, build your house, know who's your foundation, knows who your walls, knows who's your, who is your roof and your doors and your windows and own it. Incredible advice. Yeah. Cause I didn't do that. I was really lucky that my community caught me the first time and that David's community caught me the second time. And that's why I'm a lucky person. That's right. You're not unlucky. Like you said in the beginning, you are very lucky. I am a very lucky and I'm going to say blessed person. Yeah, but it hashtag blessed, but it takes yeah. a lot of work. <laughs> it and takes a lot of work. 
you've put that work in. Yeah. It's been a full-time job Yeah, to get to a place of recovery. And I think where I can say I'm recovered and it took a lot of reading and I can say that the goal of any recovery is to rebuild a good life worth losing again. And that's where I am right now. And, and recovery is vibrant. It is, it's, it's, it's not like I, I want people to understand that my recovery was lush and juicy and colorful and sweaty and uh, difficult, but so life affirming. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of this. I mean, I, I really, I, I thought the book was wonderful. I thought, like I said, I really went on the journey with you for so many of the scenes. And I'm so glad you didn't listen to the people that said it yeah. was too soon to <laughs> too write soon. this no. book. Yeah. What is think, next uh, from you? Where can we see Sean Hitchens next? Are you going to try to dabble in comedy anymore or just in different ways, not with the audience? What can we see from you? Well, now that my agents know I have survived, they want me to write a new comedy uh -huh. <laughs> stand up. And they, so yeah, so I'm, I'm now building something that's going to look a little different than my other work, but I just want to get back in front of audiences when we can get back in front of audiences. Will you and... be addressing death? Do you think? Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I, you know, the tattoos are on my body, so I got to point to them. You um, need to. I mean, I think we need more space for there to be comedy in death. It's there. We just need yeah. to talk about it more. So yeah. perfect person to do it. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I'm so glad we connected. <laughs> me so. too. Me too. Thanks for listening. Head over to Instagram to follow more at So Sorry with Gianna. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave that five-star review. I would love you for it. More to come on this season of So Sorry for Your Loss. So stay tuned.